Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Chris Rydell, actor and now podcast host, I guess. Um, that guy you've seen on a million TV shows and movies, but you still do not know my name. And I'm David Allen Bache, actor and sometimes producer. And you also recognize me from lots of films and TV shows, but you probably couldn't name one of them right now if I paid you to. The two of us and our guests are going to let you in on some secrets on how to make it as an actor and share some private stories from the many movies and TV shows that we've worked on. That's right. We're going to interview a special guest each week, and we'll get their best advice and wisdom for you about how to break into this business and how to stay in it. And yes, again, there will be stories, stories, stories. So let's get to it. This is Confessions of a Working Actor. Okay, welcome back to Confessions of a Working Actor. How are you, Chris? I'm doing well, David. How are you doing? I'm doing well. You know, I'm still here. The acting world is opening up and COVID is disappearing and people are working. And yeah, it's good. It's good. Over the weekend, I was watching uh, SAG After Foundation. The SAG Foundation does some great seminars and they, they throw them up on YouTube. And there was a really good one with casting directors. And some, some of my favorites were on the panel. A.V. Kaufman, Jeannie Backrack, you know, uh, Meredith Tucker, Linda Lowy. It was fantastic. Alexa Fogel. And, you know, we were just talking about this, I think, uh, with another guest maybe a week ago or a few weeks ago about how positive casting people can be about actors. Well, this is true. We are their answer to their problems. Yeah. They're praying that we solve their casting dilemma as you walk in. They're rooting for you. They totally are. And, And when I remember that, I do much better in my auditions, I feel more encouraged. I feel more positive. You know, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not like walking in front of a firing line or something like that. <laughs> it's, it's not quite as hard. Well, um, let's get some casting folks on this second season of our podcast. I love that. I love that. That's a great idea. That's a great <laughs> idea. Meanwhile, on this episode, we're going to talk to a wonderful actor, an amazing voice guy, Phil Lamar. He's a super smarty. He's an alum of Yale University. I just want to get that out of the way. Much smarter than me. He also was part of the award-winning sketch comedy group, The Groundlings, so he's, uh, you know, he's well-trained. He is definitely well-trained. If he Mm -hmm. went to Yale, little David Mm -hmm. Hammond, Earl Gister, Phil's famous for a lot of things, if I'm not mistaken. I think he was the guy that got his head blown off in Pulp Fiction, Mm. (laughs) could be. True story. Yes, Marvin, We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. And I think speaking of, he, I know that I 
I think he narrated an audiobook, like a whole audiobook about Samuel L. Jackson. So I want to know how many times the word motherfucker was used in that. <laughs> Let's get to it. Please, everyone, welcome Phil Lamar. Hey there, guys. Hey, Phil. How are you, Phil? I'm still standing. That's it. That's it. That's that's the goal these days. That's the low bar. Thanks for coming and spending some time with us on our podcast. My pleasure. We really appreciate it. We're going to get to some very insightful questions about you <laughs> and, and your... And I will try desperately to remember the answers. Yes. Yeah. We wrote them down on the inside of your hand, I'm sure. We would like to know a little bit about you and we, you know, our audience, obviously, yes, let's, we'll talk about the Pulp Fiction thing in a minute. I know that our audience probably knows you as um, a lot of the voices that you do, uh, Samurai Jack and characters on Futurama, Family Guy, Star Wars, Clone Wars. You know, the, I know they I know they're hearing this. I know you have a um, kind of a cult like following for a lot of that stuff. And before we get into sort of how did the voice stuff start to happen? How did you get started as an actor? That's one of the first questions we ask. Well, and that's actually one of the ones that I remember the answer to, because a lot of stuff, it's like, how do you get started in voiceover? Like, uh, that was 20 years ago. I don't remember. <laughs> but this was 40 years ago. And I do remember because in eighth grade, my all boys school was doing a play. And it's funny because, you know, I have a lot of friends who, you know, they tell their, you know, Actors' stories like, I used to stand in the bathroom and practice my Oscar speech holding a brush. I'm like, that wasn't me. <laughs> I was a book reading nerd. I was the least interesting person in my family. Like when I'd get together with my cousins, they were loud and funny and doing the, old, you, know, you know, the fashion shows and everything. <laughs> I was sitting in the corner reading. <laughs> but in eighth grade, the drama teacher at my school in L.A., decided to do a you know theatrical version of a book that I absolutely loved, The Phantom Tollbooth. Oh, that's one of my favorite books. Yeah. So I went to audition, not to get attention, but because there was this great little character towards the end of the book that I wanted to play, the senses taker. Oh. He takes your sense ah. of duty, your sense of purpose, you know. Yep. And I auditioned for the play and didn't get the part. Oh, I got cast as one of the leads instead. Oh, no. Like, what? Oh, okay. And I remember spending the entire rehearsal process watching the guy who got the census taker out of the corner of my eye. Like, really? <laughs> We're going to do it like that? Well, who, which, who did you play? Was it Milo or what, what character was it? I got, I got cast as Talk, the watchdog. The watchdog. Perfect. Who is, you know, Milo's, you know, companion on the journey. Yeah. But also in the play version... Talk starts off as the clock in Milo's room in the real world before Milo goes into the Tollbooth world. So the play opens with the clock alone on stage doing a monologue to the audience. Wow. And you loved it. I remember standing behind the curtain. It parted. You know, the spotlight flashed, you know, came in. I couldn't see the audience because I'm blinded by this spotlight, but I felt them. Mm. I felt the energy of the crowd come up like a wave over the tip of the stage, touch my feet, and I felt seven and a half feet tall. That's it. You I, were hooked. The, the, the thought that crystallized in my mind is, these people are mine. Mm. 
And I've been tracing that dragon for 40 years. I love it. It's a good story. That's a good story. It's a good, it's a good entree. I mean, I, I, sixth grade, sixth grade, someone made the mistake of letting me play Tom Sawyer in the school musical called Tom Sawyer. And right. I remember that feeling. I, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that had that feel like that, you know, the attention, the, the, you've got them in the palm of your hand. I mean, you, did you experience that, Chris? Well, mine was different. Mine was, you know, having grown up in a, a family of actors and my dad being a director and being forced to be in film as a young boy, like, you know, I had done things, you know, I, in Cinderella Liberty, I play, I sat on a, a boat dock fishing and was in a scene with James Caan, but it didn't mean anything. But in, in Henry Fonda, when in On Golden Pond, Henry Fonda turns to me and says, you think it's funny being old? Like, you know, I, I joked with him. And when he turned around and he said, do you think it's funny being old? I was like, holy shit, it is not fun to be old, you know? <laughs> and, 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 and the reality of, it, of that, no, I mean, it was unbelievable. Mm. And I was hooked at that moment. Mm. You know, I was just, because at first it was like, I don't really want to do this. You know, I don't want to do this. <laughs> right. And then it was right. like, oh my God, I have to do this. Right. Oh, wow. So basically you're like, Ken Griffey Jr., who's like, I'm really good at basketball. But then you're like, oh, wait a minute. Right. I've been seeing ba baseballs my whole life. Mm. And then you realize you actually have that skill. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and I knew it. I felt comfortable on a set. It was like home to me. It's always been home right. to me. You know, I, I ran around on sets from, you know, with John Wayne running around. You know what I mean? It was like, it was just, I was a little kid, you know, it's. It was my life, and it and yep. it's continued to be like wow. a, a passion forever. You know. Yeah. Well, it's and it's interesting because you know this thing that felt good to us could have been a nightmare to someone else. It's mm -hmm. like I'm up on stage and everyone in the room is staring at me. You know that energy that hits you from an audience. If and I think it's like it's like you know a mutant power. If you are the kind of person where that energy comes in and it feels good and it empowers you as opposed to the person where it just makes you start to get so nervous and sweat and pee yourself, right. you know? It's interesting, you being the guy that was in a fantasy world, like with his books, you know, it, it kind of that, that connection of still being able to live in that fantasy world, but, but having this ultra power at the same time. It's like, you know. You're the, the the quarterback all of a sudden of the football mm. team, you know. Mm. Right, right. Yeah, and we and we want you know as I think as kids, if we if we did want to be actors, you know whether we were kind of you know pushed towards it or not, once we sort of embraced it, I, I've heard from so many people, you know, then I wanted to go do the things that I thought actors did, you know. Then ah. I and and I know I felt that way. I wanted to. I saw you know the Hunt for Red October. I was like, I got to do a submarine movie. You know, like, I got to do a Western. I got to do a space movie. I got to do the, is there some, is, was there some genre or something that you had always wanted to do, either that you got to do, Phil, or that you're still hoping for? Well, it's interesting because once I started acting, again, the goal for me was not the attention as much as the production. Like, I did tech crew on just as many plays in high school as I performed. Hmm. Like, oh, I'm going to run lights on the night of January 16th. And the thing was, that experience of being a part of the production, it felt just as good 
to be, you know, painting the sets and running, being a stage manager as it did to do costume changes and be mm. on stage. That's a great point. You know, I did not graduate with a degree from Yale, but I did spend a summer there. I was at the Summer Cabaret, and we did seven shows in eight weeks. You were to, you, did you, you did the summer program? I, we knew, well, I, I did, we I did a summer program with Earl Gister, right. David Hammond. In, in, oh, wow. And that was in, I'm dating right. myself, but... 80, in 1650, I did the summer cabaret, which was with the actual uh, graduate students, and they, uh, held, they held all of the uh, important positions in the, the theater, and we would be apprentices. So we got to switch. We did seven shows in eight weeks. So one week I was assistant a casting person, assistant director, assistant lighting, assistant production designer. And I just wanted to comment briefly about that and say... It's a good point to anyone who's listening, who's starting, who's saying, I just, you know, I, I when am I going to have a bigger role? And, you know, it, you know what? Sometimes take us take the smaller part, paint the sets, sweep the floors and not just like eh, pay your dues, uh, but you get to feel a part of a community. You get to see what other people do. You get to see how actors behave. And you're like, well, oh, I want to be like that person. I do not want to be like that person. So I, that's a very good point. Yeah, well, it's 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 interesting that you brought up Yale because this is something I definitely need to clarify because as an actor who, you know, has a diploma from Yale, everybody thinks, oh, you're like uh, Angela Bassett, right. Henry Winkler. Like, right. no. No. Those, they were at Yale Drama School. Right. I was their undergrad. And when I was there, the undergraduate, actually, there wasn't an undergraduate drama program. Mm. There was a theater studies major that had mm. two full-time faculty members. So I could have easily not become an actor, even though I went to Yale. I, I you know, applied to schools that had reputations, you know, applied to Northwestern, USC, the Carnegie Mellon, like conservatory program, mm -hmm. but ended up deciding to go to Yale, got there and realized, oh wait, this isn't the graduate drama program. This is something else. <laughs> oh crap. Uh, and and the weird thing was they would not let undergraduates even audit acting classes mm. in the graduate program. So I was like, all right. But the good thing was undergraduate Yale had a great, you know, sort of intramural sort of drama thing. You know, you've got all these residential colleges and each one of them has a little drama club. So you could basically do three to four plays a semester. Mm. You didn't get any credit for it, <laughs> but I'm but, like, oh, great. And what happened was, you know, freshman year, I did a bunch of plays, including Woody Allen's God and Death, you know, and and I got that sort of feeling of community. Mm. And then sophomore year, a buddy of mine who I had done, you know, the Woody Allen play with came back from the summer he spent in Chicago doing classes at Second City and Improv Olympic. And he said, hey, guys, why don't we do improv? Ooh. And we're like, what? <laughs> What's that? Right. And he just, no, no, I was, I was taking classes in Chicago with this guy named Del Close, and he came up with this long-form improv comedy thing called A Herald. And he just, like, did a diagram of a herald on a napkin in the dining hall for us. And we're like, all right, sure. And so we started a long-form improv group without ever having seen it. Wow. And that changed my life. Why? Amazing. Well, because, you know, at 19, 
being introduced to improvisation as a philosophy was like, oh, wait, all these years I've been taught that the root of drama is conflict. Mm. But now you're, you're telling me that yes and. Yes and. The, the core of performance is collaboration, mm. working together. You know, make your partner look good. Oh, okay. And yeah. so we yeah. formed this group. We started doing shows at the weekends and, you know, people started showing up. We had a great time and we all loved it so much that that summer, the entire group said, let's go to Chicago. And so we took a pilgrimage and we went and studied with this guy, Del Close, who was basically one of the gods of improvisation. And that, you know, I continued to do plays in college and then once I came home to L.A. after graduation, I signed up for classes at the Groundlings, but not as a career move, but to get a taste of the feel of my improv group in college. I need those people again. I need that to be surrounded. So I'm going to take some of my day job money and pay for these people to give me that. Yeah, I get I get that. I know when I first moved to Los Angeles after having lived in New York for a while, I waited tables in New York. I kind of got started here in the theater. When I first came out to L.A., I, I was so craving that sense of the theater or improv community that that my wife and I said, we got to like start a salon in our living room. And we just had people come over. We met people who were writers who said, like, I'm trying to write a screenplay. And we were like, well, just bring the first act and we'll just sit in the living room and we'll get all our friends who are actors to read it. And um, at one point, we were kind of organized, and you know, my buddy uh, uh, Hank, my buddies Hank and Greg, who wrote Saving Silverman, you know, brought in pages from that or something else. Or they, wow. And we were called. One of them lived on Clark Street, so we were called the Clark Street Players. <laughs> and um, you know, we made up coasters. It was very official. Ooh, wow! But that that sense of community when you're first starting, you know, back back then, I think is is really important. Yeah. Yeah. What's something, Phil, that you wish you had? known you know back then that you know now maybe something you could share with a listener that's just starting out whether it's you know about improv or about the business in general about acting about life well actually one of the great insights that i got you know in the beginning of my career came about pretty accidentally i was like i said i was signed up to take groundlings classes just to get some improv back in my life, but I wound up going into their program. And so you take this class, you move to the next class and you start writing and you start getting judged. And so I was working my way up through the groundlings in the, you know, groundling Sunday company where you get voted on every six months. Like, are you good enough to stay or are you great enough to get moved into the main company? We don't know. And so it was a pretty competitive environment. I remember one time we had an industry night and somebody like sabotaged another person's sketch. You know, like, no. wait, you rehearsed the sketch? No. And but when you when the you know casting directors were out there, you threw on a different costume and a wig and like took their <laughs> took the spotlight in somebody else's sketch? No. But during that period in my life, you know, it's, it's a bunch of us in our 20s and we're you know fighting, and you know, sometimes you're, you know hitting on that, that scene partner. Sometimes you're stabbing him in the back. Who knows? We're, we're just young and hungry. It's cutthroat. Exactly. <laughs> this is, this is... But, you know, being at the Groundlings, I wound up getting work 
because there was a, a woman who called. And it's like, yeah, I'm looking for improvisers for a looping job on uh, House Party 2. So do you guys have, you know, you, have, you know, some improvisers, people of color? And they're like, uh, looking at the groundlings wall, like, um, nope. Let me, get, let me go all the way down the list. Oh, wait, we've got this guy down in intermediate. Yeah, here. Ah. <laughs> Call him. That was a damn white wall, I, I bet. <laughs> yeah, back then. Yeah, <laughs> shit. Yeah. And so I met this woman, Wendy Cutler. She hired me for this looping group. But she was part of an improv group called Off the Wall that had been doing improv at the, you know, at the improv comedy club. Monday nights since the late 70s. Robin Williams used to sit in with them. Wow. And I met her through the looping group. And she said, oh, I like you hey, why don't you come sit in with our group? So, you know, Sunday night, I was there slashing throats with my fellow Sunday company members. But then that Monday, I went over and I'm playing with these improvisers, people in their 40s who've been doing this for, you know, a, a lifetime longer than I have. And they were so nice and at home. And it was amazing because like, what I learned from them, nobody said it, but what I saw was like, hey, we've been doing this for 40 years. No one show has ever made us billionaires or killed us. We show up to have fun. Well, that might be my next tattoo. That's, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, uh, that's profound. You know, so, you know, these, these young people were like, oh, everything's important. And I was like, no, what's important is having a great time on stage. And it balanced, being able to have that experience with them mm. balanced me out. So when I came back to the Groundlings, I'm like, I saw it through a completely different lens. You know, this is not, this is not about fighting. This is about enjoying. We're actors. We chose this path so that we wouldn't have to, you know, dig ditches or you know, be bored for eight hours a day putting in data. We did it so we could do something that feeds our souls. A good way to think about, you know, all aspects of the business, uh, the audition process, the, mm. the, the work on a movie. And no one movie is going to change your life completely. Right. It might get you another movie, but that, right. movie, might, that movie might ruin your life. Mm -hmm. You know, and then it never really ruins it because you come back, you know, it's a no one job is going to make it. Exactly. Yeah, no, no one job is going to change who you are as a person. Well, that's you know, a good, great advice. Great. That's, advice. that's really good advice. And, you know, you you've you have an amazing body of work. It's uh, you're prolific and it's lasted uh, decades. And it sounds to me like you, some of those early experiences with improv gave you that sense of community that you needed and some of those early lessons to kind of hold on in a career that can be incredibly challenging. Um, right. Was was there a time where you felt like you wanted to give up, where you felt like, I don't know if this is all it's cracked up to be? Yes, yes. The first year back in L.A. after college, I remember, I mean, on the flight home from the East Coast is when I decided well, should I do this acting thing? Like, well, yeah, I guess. I mean, people say I'm pretty good and I enjoy it. Either I got to do it now or, 
wait till I'm 40 and having a midlife crisis and, you know, either buy a, you know, Porsche convertible or, you know, try to be an actor. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I came in in 88 and then after a year where nothing happened, you know, I was taking these classes at the Groundlings. I maybe had a little thing, but it, but I was, I'd set my goal. Like I want to make a living as an actor. Mm. It wasn't happening. And after that first year, I thought, all right, didn't work. But then I stopped and I asked myself, did you do everything in your power to make it work? And I realized, no, there were all these blocks that I'd put up in my head. You know, it's like, no, I'm not going to ask somebody. I don't want to look like, you know, one of those cliche actors who's, you know, hey, everybody, I'm an actor, you know, and I, I refused to wait tables because I didn't ever want to have to answer that, you know, oh, you're an actor? What restaurant do you work at? Uh, but I, I found that I that I was avoiding cliches or, you know, obvious tropes or whatever. And it's like, why? Some of those things are tropes because they have value. They do work sometimes. So why are you avoiding things that could work? It's like, just so I don't have to tell that anecdote. Mm. No, that's dumb. If you want to make this career happen, do everything you can. And so in that second year, I reached out to a friend of my mother's who was an executive at NBC, who I'd been avoiding calling. It's like, that's That's dumb. So is this what it means to you to be a working actor? Like, I mean, to do everything you can, what does it mean to you to be a working actor? Well, I mean, well, one, (laughs) I had to realize that being a working actor, making your living as an actor is a moving target. And just because you did it this month doesn't mean you'll do it next month. And over the years, that's what I found is one of the things that, you know, can weed people out. It's not just talent. It's temperament. I mean, I know many people who were much better performers than me who just couldn't take not knowing if they were going to be able to pay their rent month to month. And they're like, Screw it. I'm going back to Ohio and working in my dad's you know, shoe store mm-hmm. because then I know I'm going to get a check every week. You know, for a lot of people, the and it's funny because you always hear it's like, oh, the rejection is the hardest part. And I think for some people, but for, uh, to me, what I found over the years is the instability. I mean, and we're all of that age where, you know, when we chose this, people looked at you like, huh, you're crazy. You're going to go try to be an actor, you know, whereas it's like, no, the rule as an adult is graduate, get a good steady job and work until you get your pension, Mm. you know, and as an actor, that's not the path. No, no, there's no path. That's the other thing. There's no one good steady job that you're going to have. Well, unless you're a voice on The Simpsons, but <laughs> but even even Dan Castellaneta didn't know that was going to happen. That's right. That's right. Well, so that's a, a speaking of sort of big shows or sets you've been on, things like that. One of the other things we love to ask our guests is to share a story about a positive experience with another actor or director. 
casting person. Just a just a really like positive, inspiring, uplifting story from one of the sets you on you were on or a job that you Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Oh, God. I've been lucky enough to, you know, one, have... People who are legends in my mind be standing before me, mm. you know, and that teaches you things that teaches you that like, oh, this mythical power that I've, you know, envisioned this person, they're a real person. You know, I've gotten to work with, you know, people that I grew up watching on TV, John Travolta, Carol Burnett, you know, and as intimidating as that can be, it's also empowering because you realize, oh, we're all humans. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, and they were all lovely. Although John Travolta taught me a really amazing thing about stardom, that it's not an accident and it's not just, you know, pretty eyes. When we were doing Pulp Fiction, because the, the movie was very low budget, one of the ways Quentin saved money was he rehearsed the entire movie before shooting started. So I remember one day, it's like, oh, Phil, come on over to the Sony Studios. And I come onto the lot and we're on a soundstage where they have taped out the hallways of the, you know, of the scene where, you know, the two hitmen come to take out the kids with the briefcase. Mm. And I met John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson, you know, for rehearsal. Holy shit. And it's funny because I walk in and... First thing John Travolta says, like, oh, geez, I got to kill him? The audience is going to hate me. <laughs> First of all, I, I know everyone just went, oh, my God, that was so spot on, that impression. My God, Phil. And yes, and so they, but did they decide that, like, I, I, I think I read they decided that they couldn't, they couldn't like wound you and then put put two more in in the back of your head just to finish you off like that it yeah. had to be it had to be an accident is that right well well that was john because oh. because he said that and i thought he was just making a joke but later i found out he talked to quentin about it ah. because the reason john is a star is because he has a relationship with the audience that he has a you know a sixth sense about, and he told him like, look, because originally you're right. He was supposed to shoot me. He come turns around, shoots me in the throat, and I'm sitting there gurgling while they banter back and forth. And this, all right, put him out of his misery. And then he shoots me on purpose in the head. And then you know they have the whole like, oh, let's call Harvey Keitel thing. Not as likable. No. Right. 
But, and John Tolkien's like, no, if my character, if I shoot him on accident, that's fine. But if I shoot him on purpose, it's going to turn the audience against Vincent. Mm -hmm. And Quentin's like, this guy knows. And it's, it's one of only two things in wow. that script that changed. Amazing. You know, because John was right. John understood how the audience, I mean, even though it's a different character than Vinnie Barbarino or whatever, he has this, I was, and I realized, like, oh my God, that's why he's in this level of stardom. He gets it. He knows how mm. he is touching people through the screen. And it blew my mind. I'm like, how is that even possible? Mm. Well, it's such a good point, too. And, you know, we've we've heard other guests say before, don't try to please the audience. Don't try to please the casting people. Just be yourself. Go in and do your thing. But you make a really good point, which is that if you find as an actor uh, that you have a sense of I've got them, I've got them in the palm of my hand or this is a moment where they're going to bond with the character. And, you know, if you have those senses and that instinct about how you relate to the audience as a character, I think that we we need to follow those instincts. I agree with you. Right, which is amazing because it's not like John is a writer, you know, but he was taught what he was talking about is how it was going to affect the story, mm -hmm. you know, on a character level. And that that was amazing to me. And was a, there was another instance on the, the uh, cartoon Samurai Jack. It's funny because people always ask me, it's like, okay, you've worked on camera, you worked on stage, you worked in cartoons, which one do you like best? And I tell them, it's like, it's not about the medium. It's about the level of quality. To me, Samurai Jack has more in common with Pulp Fiction mm -hmm. than it does with, you know, some crappy Nickelodeon cartoon. You know, even, even just because they're made in the same studio in the Philippines doesn't mean the artwork is the same. Because you have a creator, you know, Gendy Tartakovsky, who created Samurai Jack, is a genius just like Quentin Tarantino. And on that series, most of the episodes were m myself voicing the samurai and Mako Iwamatsu, you know, the classic wow. actor, voicing the villain, Aku. And it was funny because Mako didn't consider himself a voice actor, although he had done everything. He had done movies. He had helped found East West Players in L.A. He had starred on Broadway. His, his name was above the title you know, in Stephen Sondheim's Pacific Overtures. Wow. You know, so I'm sharing a booth in Burbank with this legend, you know. But I remember there was one episode, because Marco had a very distinctive voice, you know, a lot of texture, his mm. accent. He doesn't drop his accent to do the character. He is, he is him, you know. Mm -hmm. And one day they said, oh, and Marco, you're going to play this other character as well as Aku. And I remember, you know, this is a, you know, this is like early 2000s. I remember thinking, really? You're going to cast two characters with one voice? <laughs> the audience is going to know it. What are you guys doing? <laughs> and I, th I remember thinking, it's like, you know what? By the end of this session, when Mako leaves, they're going to say, hey, Phil, go ahead and revoice this. <laughs> <laughs> but what Mako did was he didn't transform his voice into something completely different. Mm. But being an amazing actor, he played the other character in a completely different way than he was playing Aku. And when you watch that cartoon, you can't tell it's him. Mm. I was like, oh, shit. That's when I realized the acting 
comes before the voice uh, in voice acting. Wow. And I'm and like, all- oh my God, this guy just taught me my career. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Phil. That just, you taught me something. Yeah, me too. You know, because, I mean, because, you know, coming from improv and sketch comedy, you know, you approach voice acting like at the Growlings, we approach characters. Oh, let me put, let me put on a different wig. It's like, right. well, it's not about the wig right. that how makes do the I, character. How it's do I differentiate? It's what you do under it right. that right. makes the character. And that's what, you know, because you're know, working with uh, Paul Rubens, who also came from the Groundlings, he created Pee Wee not sitting there thinking, let me come up with, you know, a classic iconic character <laughs> that's going to be the human Mickey Mouse for the next 40 years. He was doing an improv. They were doing a game where it's like, all right, uh, Everybody, let's do bad, bad stand-ups. And so he was just he just made a character choice that he thought would work for this one game. They were doing that one night. And it clicked. Speaking of character choices. Wow. Well, um, we do something here on our podcast. We ask every guest maybe that you could share your worst audition story ever. <laughs> I still, I keep thinking that the engineers are going to add in like a bum, bum, bum. (laughs) Worst audition story ever. (laughs) What do you got, Phil? (laughs) We've had some some doozies, and I think they really help actors who listen to this know that all actors have a shitty audition, that we all have some, and there's no perfect audition. And so when we share them, I think it just helps people to relax a little bit and make fun of ourselves. So go for it. Well, I mean, yeah, this, this one, I, this one has to be the one. (laughs) I remember it was, uh, what mid nineties was auditioning for an Andrea Martin pilot. You know, and being a fan of sketch comedy, I loved SCTV. I loved Andrea Martin. I'm like, oh, my God, this is great. And it was just like, you know, some little co-star under five part, a delivery guy who comes to her mansion and says, hey, somebody's got a sign for this. And, you know, this is like, you know, I'm like, oh, delivery guy. okay, I'm just going to wear my, you know, I'm going to I basically dressed like uh, Spike Lee in she in uh, Do the Right Thing, you know, I had my my shorts and my my high tops, and like, all right, hey, somebody's got a sign for this, and you know, I'm just in the casting office, and there's the director and you know some producers or whatever sitting on the couch, and you know, there was nothing big at stake, but it got weird. I went through the scene. It's like, hey, somebody's got a sign for this. And you, and I finished my I finished the scene and there's that beat where you can feel mm. that the people sitting in front of you want to turn to each other and go, okay, he doesn't. But since you're three feet away, they can't. So they go, hmm, how about <laughs> they just take that deep breath, but then the director goes, okay, okay, Phil, Phil, here, come on. Just Try it again, but, you know, angrier. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. And I'm like, hey, somebody's got a sign for this. Second time through. No, dude, 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 come on. Really, just give it to her. Give it to her. Like, okay, all right. Because it's not, it's not written. doesn't say he's, you know, incensed. 
But I, every time I did it, he kept saying, it got to the point where it's like, you can beep this out later. He's like, guard, come on. She's just a real fucking cunt. Just let her have it. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm a co-star talking to the star. Of the, okay, what? And that's when it clicked for him. He's like, oh, he doesn't actually mean make it angrier. He wants it blacker. <laughs> oh. But the only way he could think to coach that was, come on, angrier, madder. And then I just got in my head like, dude, who kicked your ass in high school so much that the, that you equate right? angry with black? What the hell? And it was like one of those things where you're just like, oh, God, okay. And I realized that's what he's been having trying. Because I was doing it. I did it yeah. angrier every yeah. single time. And you had the realization right there in the room. like, And then uh -huh. what? And then I was like, this dude's messed up. I'm not sure I want to work with him. So I didn't do it. Because mm -hmm. I was like, yo, somebody got to sign for this. <laughs> and they were like, perfect. But no, I didn't do it. <laughs> no. I just did it. Yep. I did it talking like me, but even angrier. <laughs> Somebody's got to sign for this. All right, thanks, bye. Thanks, bye. I love that you did that, by the way. I love that you were like, nope, I'm not doing it. Right. But then he followed me out. What? The director followed me downstairs. He's like, hey, man, I know you can do this. Come on, just walk in those shoes the way you'd walk in those shoes. Wow. Because like, I'm wearing my my high-top sneakers. Wow. Uh, and it's like, oh, dude. this dude, I'm going to punch you. Getting worse and worse and worse. And it's like, what is wrong with you? You know, and so uncomfortable, right? And it's funny so because nowadays, now that we, you know, have the term microaggression, mm. and you know, I could, I could file an HR complaint. But, mm. but back in the nineties, well, he didn't say the N word, so this guy's just he, there's just something messed up in his head. Yeah, yeah, and and racism is, uh, you know, I know we'll hear from other guests that racism is something they've dealt with there's sexism i'm you right. know uh we're gonna hear about gender issues where and i'm not i'm not trying to put a blanket over all those say they're all the same at all but I'm, no. I'm so glad you shared that because i think those you know bigotry and racism and prejudice and i think that's gotta figure into a lot of people's worst audition stories because mm -hmm. it's wildly inappropriate completely wrong and and you're uncomfortable and you're the product you're it there's you know and i love that you were like oh I, oh wait a minute it clicked i know exactly what he wants and fuck you i'm not doing it <laughs> i love because it the thing was like if that's how the, if that's the way your mind works if if you just think you know any black person should be angry at all times <laughs> and that whole thing of like walk in those shoes the way you'd walk in those shoes like Oh, so you think I'm talking like this? I'm faking it? You know, it's like, no, no, man. Use your real black voice. Unbelievable. Uh, and I'm like, oh, God. So, I mean, I'm not saying that, that person is a racist. I'm just saying that he has weird racial stuff in his head. Yeah, that's okay. I'm saying he's racist. So you, <laughs> that's okay. You don't have to. Uh, that, we that's can okay. say. We could say that. All right, we're, we're going to start to wrap up here. We usually end on a segment that we call the best piece of advice. And you've given us some really interesting things to to think about already in terms of things you wish you, you had known 
and how things happened for you and, and what you kept in mind as you were uh, persevering. But if you had to really crystallize it, one one piece of advice. See, that's that's a really interesting question because I remember coming up, you know, in Hollywood, you know, I remember one of the things I would tell, you know, friends who came along is like, hey, if anybody steps up to you and says, this is how you should do it, they're either trying to sell you something or they're high because there is no one path for you that anybody else knows. So I have, I tended to avoid somebody giving, you know, this is advice. Here's my, you know, personal book on success. Like, yeah, 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 whatever. But thinking about it over time, I did have, you know, peace. like I said, there are, there are things where you learn things, but I remember one of my teachers at the Groundlings, Kathy Shambly, was a really talented, really sweet person. You know, she was teaching our class. And I remember one time in class, she said, guys, the energy you put towards judging somebody else on stage is better used just putting it back into your own work to make your stuff better. Don't, tr- don't you know, try to take down other people. Try to lift yourself up. Mm. I mean, like, and this was back in that, you know, period of the Groundlings where it was all, everybody was at each other's throats at times, even though we were supposed to be a team and a community and a, th- a company. But she was, I think, trying to help balance that negativity out. It's like, no, 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 no. Work on you, and that way you'll be together. Mm. And and it really clicked for me. It's like, oh, right. Because I remember I had friends in that class like, man, so-and-so sucks. Why did I even let her in this class? It's like, dude, it doesn't matter. We're n- We're not voting on the class. We're just here to work. And that's what Kathy taught me. It's like, mm. no, focus on the work, not on judgment. Focus on the work, not on judgment. Wise words from Phil Lamar. And, well, and uh, I think those apply even be- even more so in the internet age. Oh, amen. Mm-hmm. You know, where judgment's like, comment, 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 you know, is you what know, people spend so much more time doing that than on, you know, working on themselves and their art. You know, I feel like that whole YouTube thing where you're the t- now TikTok thing. Whereas before, you know, you do your Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. We all spent years failing before we became professionals. Well, except for Chris. You know, he was with Henry Fonda when he was four. <laughs> <laughs> but for most of us, you know, you sucked for a while, but you got better every time you sucked. Because the way to grow is to attempt. Sometimes you succeed, sometimes you fail, but you keep trying. But nowadays, everything you do is up there forever. Mm. Oh yeah, this is my first YouTube post. Now I've got 20,000 followers, so I'm not gonna try to get better. I'm just gonna try to keep giving them what they're what they clicked for. It's like, no. Mm-hmm. Shoot higher. Yep. You know, but this 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 you know world we live in now where you know attention is a currency unto itself seems to me to be pushing against artistry. I completely agree I mean, with you. I mean, think about it, you know, if uh, Da Vinci is like, oh, we love the Mona Lisa. Keep painting ladies alone. 
Can you make the smile a little bigger for us? We just... (laughs) No, no, that would be changing. (laughs) No, no, people people love the smirk. Dude, don't do a smile. Don't show teeth. You're the not teeth dude. I love it. I love it. (laughs) At least he he didn't... At least he never had to hear we're going in a different direction. (laughs) Can you imagine? We're we're calling Michelangelo. (laughs) (laughs) David Angelo. Yeah, I love it. I love it. All right, let me ask this last question. This is the last thing I want to say before we wrap up. I have worked I have worked with you, Phil, and I have worked with John DiMaggio, and I just want to tell you that you are much cooler. You are much more talented, and when John comes on the podcast, I will tell him the same thing. <laughs> you better, because he's bigger than me. <laughs> John could kick your ass. I know, I know. Shit, uh, he hasn't even agreed to come on yet. We're, we're, you know, I got to talk to him. We'll get him. We'll get him. Oh yeah, Phil. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really, thank you guys really so much for having me. And uh, I hope you're able to edit this down because I do tend to ramble. So, <laughs> well, you, you don't listen. You don't do a podcast about actors and thinking they're not going to listen to the sound of their own voice. I mean, come on. <laughs> Chris and I are both guilty. I'm a little more guilty of that than he is, but we're we're all guilty of that. Yeah. That's what the editors are for, believe me. (laughs) Did you hear that, Steve? You guys hear that, Ryan? Chelsea? All right, we'll be okay. Thanks, Phil. We so appreciate it. And it was, I want to say too, you know, it was great to talk to you about some of the other work you've done. I know that people sometimes tend to focus on your voice. I, I, I think you're a spectacular voice actor, yes, but I just think you're a spectacular actor. And I oh, thanks, I think that that's what comes first. And I know you've done Broadway, uh, obviously movies with big stars. And, you know, it's the voice stuff is spectacular. And I hope that there's just, just hundreds and hundreds of more jobs coming for you. I know there are. But meanwhile, thank you for inspiring people just about what it means to be an actor and, and a working actor and what it takes. Thank you, man. No, this is this has been this has been a joy. All right. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Phil. Wish you success. Stay well. Well, it's been another great 20 minutes with you, my friend. And you too, brother. This has been fun. Yeah, that was great. Cool. I thought that was awesome. All right, star star that. That was terrific. And we got another great guest coming up next week, so be sure to tune in again to Confessions of a Working Actor. 